This is Peak Earth. I'm Case Bradford. Thank you for tuning in to this episode with Ben Justman. Ben is an awesome guy. He's a natural winemaker up in Colorado. He grows his grapes at the highest altitude for Pinot Noir in North America, Peony Lane Farms. Sounds like a beautiful place. I'd love to get out there one day. I've got to try some of his wine. We discuss the winemaking process, how his natural wine gets made, the power of terroir, biodynamic wine versus natural wine, and why Ben loves Bitcoin. He explains and elucidates this technology in a way I've never come across before. It's a great explanation. And after that, later in the conversation, a really mind-blowing, groundbreaking, life-changing tip something about putting a stake in your pocket pocket steak is is what it's called this is ben's go-to ski snack and it's genius you want to stick around for that and what more can i say i really enjoyed this conversation appreciate you tuning in thank you and hope you enjoy this conversation with ben justman how's it going i'm doing so good good to see case absolutely glad to connect we've been having a bit of an interaction through Twitter online. And now we've connected on the podcast through the power of Bitcoin. I think we were talking a little bit about that. And I wanted to learn more from you because I'm curious about this topic. Last week spoke with Jackson uh, and he kind of gave a, a good background about like the history of Bitcoin, why it's important, how we broke out of the sort of uh, gold standard, what Nixon did to sort of uh, mess up our financial system. And you're also a, a winemaker. I'm sure there's a better term I can use there. So there's a lot that we can talk about, a lot of interesting parts of, of your life that I'm excited to, to learn more about and I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. Awesome. Um, I found you because I was, I'm looking to always like improve my body health and um, flexibility was a huge issue for me. So I may have some questions for you on that as well. It's funny, people, that's probably what I hear most often is that people were interested in some like my mobility stuff, but I don't even like really focus on that too, too forward, but maybe I should, I should probably put more energy in the sharing, like flexibility, mobility kind of stuff. It's like a, it's a popular kind of concern. For sure. And I mean, you post videos of like, I can't do that. I want to do that. So it's, uh, it's inspiring stuff to see. A lot of, a lot of that is, I'd say primarily play, which is like a fascinating energy and and something that I've been exploring over the past like five years or so. And I'm, I'm curious what you think about play in general, because you're also a playful person and a playful man, which is something that is pretty rare to find in today's age. I think a lot of people, once they become adults, once they become, you know, grown men, it's like, oh, I'm not supposed to play. But it, it's really such a powerful energy that, to, to bring to the daily life. It, I would be half the man I was today if I, if I didn't play. And I think there's a certain perception there's this like shift. It's not, you know, the way that kids play. There's ways that adults play that is like really powerful and important to, to bring to day-to-day life. Yeah. So I guess I've never thought of it quite like that, but I, I mean, where I am, everyone kind of has a play. Everyone skis in the winter. Everyone has like their, their fun thing a lot of times. So um, I live in a spot where a lot of people don't lose their play and they move out here because they want to keep that, that play aspect of their lives. Um, my favorite way is probably like I love skiing but it's super solo and so my favorite thing is like pickup sports so I play like pickup basketball pickup soccer and that like the the teamwork just like the working together even though it's super informal is like just gives me so much energy to bring to the rest of my life so um, I hear you on that value and it's it's um, just gets your brain outside like it puts you in just new situations that your brain just has to react and then you kind of relax and you can approach the rest of your life with a bit more ease yeah, that's really well said. So you grew up in, in Colorado, where you are now? Yeah, I grew up in Paonia, Western Colorado, um, on the, the vineyard that I live on now. And I moved back in 2020 to build a house with my dad, and now I'm living in it. That's awesome. What was it? What was it like having the first glass of wine on the vineyard that I grew up in? How, how old were you when, when you had your first taste of vino? was probably like 12, I want to say, maybe a little bit older. And um, 
we were at my family's cabin in the mountains and my I like was never allowed sugar except at unless I snuck it or except at like special events. And so Coca-Cola, when we went skiing, we'd always have a glass, a glass of Coke to share at the top of the mountain. It was like my favorite thing. And so we're at my, my family's cabin and my dad has a plastic bottle, 12 ounce bottle of vanilla Coke. And I was like, no way. This is what? Um, so I said, dad, can I have a sip? And my dad says, yeah. And I should have known instantly that something was wrong and it was filled with wine. So 13-year-old Ben had his first taste of wine out of a plastic vanilla Coke bottle and hated it. And I, I didn't really start liking wine until I moved away from the vineyard. So, um, yeah, I could have lived it up in high school, but it turns out 17-year-olds don't appreciate good wine. <laughs> wow, that's that's interesting. Not not what I was expecting, but definitely an interesting backstory to, to now being on a a what, what do you call it it's um is it a, a vineyard or a, what is like the proper vineyard. terminology yeah vineyard. it's vineyard. like it's uh we have three acres in production of vineyard and then another four that's coming up but it's really a sustenance farm my dad wanted to grow all his own food and live off the land in retirement so he did it and we have a bunch of different fruit trees um all kinds of berries, huge garden, uh, big greenhouse, chickens, sheep, goats, just a little bit of everything to just, you know, round out the world, provide the food. And um, wine just wasn't ever initially part of the plan, but it just kind of happened and, and worked out really well. That's cool. That's really cool. I know a, a small amount about the wine industry as a whole. And from what I understand, I believe the average bottle of wine has something around 60, 70, maybe even 80 ingredients that, that aren't anywhere on the label. Go pick up, you know, anyone listening, go pick up a wine bottle and like try and find the ingredients. You're just not going to see it on there. And if you were to see the ingredients, it'd just be like this long book with like multiple pages. And from what I understand, and I'm sure you know much more about this, a lot of those ingredients aren't things that you'd really choose to have in your in your beverage if, if you're going to be, you know, health conscious about, about the wine that you were drinking. Yeah, it's pretty shady how there's no ingredients list on a wine bottle, just considering that. Like, I essentially add nothing to my wine. I add a little bit of um, sulfites right at bottling just to make sure it's stable in the bottle, but like a tiny amount compared to what everyone else adds. And yeah, there's so much that's added. Um, honestly, like I'm coming from, I grew up, I learned how to make wine from my dad and kind of just doing it. And he made wine with nothing added at all. Um, and so that was my baseline. And every once in a while I get like um, winemakers that were conventionally trained coming into my wine cellar and they taste the wine. They're like, oh, you can do this to change it this way. And I'm, I just like, I got to say no. Like I don't want <laughs> wine that is manipulated. I want wine to taste like it, it was meant to taste um, from my vineyard and the, the wild yeast that I use. Um, my goal as a winemaker is to kind of is to be more of a shepherd than um, like a chemist, which is what you turn into when you start adding all that stuff. And so with that, you get a product that you just feel a lot better drinking. Like I can't tell you how many times someone has drank my wine and then said like, Oh, it was amazing. I, felt, I didn't have a headache. I always get a headache drinking red wine, but they don't with mine because there's no other additives. It's not all that junk. It's not the wine that gives you a headache unless you drink in excess, like I'm not making that disclaimer, <laughs> but um, generally like it's not the wine that you, that gives you the headache. It's all of the crap that they add to it, which as you said, is pretty extensive and there's no, there's no um, transparency behind it. And then like you're on a wine bottle and you're trying to get away from all that stuff. And it's, it's hard to even find like without a ton of knowledge, it's hard to find anything without it. Um, so yeah, it's it's a great reason to um, really you got to find a place that you can trust to buy your wine from a, a shop owner that knows their stuff, or you got to know your winemaker and know exactly where it's coming from because there is so much stuff added to wine. It's a great great principles for for all kinds of food, wine wine included. And there's this word that gets tossed around a lot in the wine industry that I, I love is this. French word terroir. It's this idea that when you mm -hmm. 
consume the wine, drink the wine. You're sort of also tasting the place. Like I've had the most memorable terroir I've, I've had from a wine. It was this, um, wine from a, a vineyard in, in uh, Croatia. It was grown near the sea and it was salty because it was the salty air had, had impacted the characteristics of the grapes and in, in the wine. And you could really, really taste that saltiness. It was like, a, it almost like brought your mind's eye to that coastal region in, in Croatia. Even though I had never been there, I could kind of see it. Like it almost felt like I was there. I, I feel like a, a good natural wine does that. Like it imbues the sense of the place through the act of consuming it. Yeah. That's totally the idea is you want to, to experience the the time and place where you're at. I mean, that specific year, what was that like in this location? And the more you do as a winemaker, you obfuscate that pretty, you can pretty heavily. Like, um, Tawar is, refers also to the work that the winemaker does. So it's really like everything except for maybe the genetic or variety of the grape. But even then it's kind of everything. It's not a word that's easily defined, but um, what I'm trying to bring to the table is like as little change manipulation from the winemaker's perspective as possible. Like, cause I want that. I think I have a beautiful location. I think beautiful wine comes from here and I just want that to shine through. I don't want me as a person changing the flavor to, to really affect things. So it's really special to find a, a cool place and, um, it's, I think as a winemaker, it's, it's once you figure out how to manipulate things, it's probably hard to hold back. You know, you're like, oh, I want it to taste this way, or it's not as good of a year, but it's the uniqueness, the, the time capsule of that year that makes um, vintage wine special. It's amazing. Amazing to consider because on one hand, it is like a commercial product where you, you might think in the mind of a consumer, they want something sort of standardized. Like a lot of, a lot of consumers are sort of we're, we're like led to believe that, you know, Big Mac needs to be the same Big Mac every time and then you've got something that's actually got a characteristic to it. It's going to be very different. Like every, every year, every season, you're going to have different grapes, which will result in a different, different wine. It's not going to be the same. That's so special and, and powerful to think that it's, it's a really living like product that you're producing. It's not something that's been industrialized, standardized and, and commercialized. The, you know, the life hasn't been bred out of it. You've got this like living dynamic system that you're bottling up and presenting to somebody. It's like, it's really it's quite a gift. Totally. And like always changing. I mean, every time I taste my wine, it's, it's slightly different. Um, more so in the early stages. So like when it's in the barrel, um, I usually, I open it up to, to refill the barrel about once a month and I taste it every time. And it's like, sometimes I'm like, Ooh, that's rough. And then the next month I taste it and it's amazing. You know, it's just going through these different changes alongside it. But like, I'd always you always hear wine gets better with age, right? And there's a, I mean, it, some wines do, some wines don't, but generally red wine especially gets better with age um, to a degree, to a point at least. And I had this wine in my 2020 vintage. So I was selling it in 2022 um, at about 18 months old. So a year and a half old, um, this wine had a little bit of a bite to it. Like I wasn't really confident selling it and I held it back. I kept tasting it. And then as we got to about two years, that bite just started slowly going away. Every week I'd taste it and it was, and then eventually it was just gone. And it's like, this wine is awesome now. I didn't do anything to it. It literally just sat there in the, in the bottle. Um, and like, that was the most visceral experience I've ever had to wine, just improving with age and getting better with age. And so now I'm like, I can, I will never sell wine younger than two years old again after experiencing that like i if my product just gets better with age why would i ever want to release it early so running a business it's like you're you know you've got a cap on how much you can sell you can you can't really bring that much profit to the from the future to the present so you're always kind of just wanting to to build it slowly 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 um with the baseline of being a good a good product a good wine and just being patient and having time tends to to bring that out. Do you mind talking more about wine? Because I'm striking my curiosity. Go Is for it. it. Do you, yeah, yeah, of course. The, so I'm fascinated by like, how does, because you're growing the grapes and you're also bottling it up and it, you go through the entire process just right there on, on your establishment. Is it basically from grape to bottle? Yeah. So I, I grow Pinot Noir on my farm. That's 
what I what we found to be the best red variety that grows here. We're in, I'm in the highest grape growing region in North America, so it's the highest Pinot Noir in North America by a decent amount. And that is all like never leaves my property. All my other varieties I get from a fifth generation family farm like an hour away. It's about 2,000 feet lower. It's a slightly different growing area. Um, so they can grow different varieties. They have a bit more flexibility. In like the whole winemaking process, the grapevines are like so much, so much of the labor. I mean, so much more than everything else uh, that it, as a small winery, like if I can get good grapes from somewhere else, it just makes sense to do so. Because when you plant a new vineyard, it's going to be eight years before you see really any financial return. You got um, four-ish years to get a, a decent crop coming out of the ground if all goes well, and then you're aging for two years and then selling for a year. So seven on the low side, eight really to be to get be getting a real a real crop, and then you're still backed up all those years. So, um, like I said, we're plant we planted a new vineyard three or four years ago. We've kind of been having issues getting it up but when that gets, comes going you know it's like still another two years before I sell any of the wine so um yeah everything's done on on um our my family's property I, it's basically me I do all the labor and I hire a buddy and pay him in wine and they help me out for a day when I need it but yeah it's just it's really just me doing doing everything so I know what goes into my wine that's that's pretty easy to tell <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's your feet stomping the grapes is that how it goes or is that is that just a misconception about how wine is made? uh we have a machine that that does that it's called a de-stimmer <laughs> so it crushes a little bit of the grapes and then it takes all this or most of the stems out um so you're not so we're not doing full cluster fermentation makes life a lot easier i don't have a i don't like have a huge swath of uh naked peasant girls to hire to stomp my grapes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So the terroir does not include the taste of your feet squishing the wine. This is this is all you got. You've got a nice sterile machine that is making that magic happen. No, if that's something you need, we could probably figure something out. But. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta pay extra for that for that part. So how how does how does it even like so growing the actual tending to the vines is the majority of the work, and and that is really that's where the farming comes into play. And then once you once you harvest or source the other grapes from the other fifth generation family farm, which is wild to think about in America that, that there is such, such a thing. We, you know, that's, that's a long time. That's so then you bring in the grapes, you process them. And then it kind of, after you squish them, it ends up in a barrel where it's kind of like fermenting essentially for a period of time until the alcohol kind of forms and, and you've got wine from that. Yeah, pretty much. It's not a barrel, but like a, a, a food safe plastic, uh, bin that's just holds yeah holds about maybe 800 to a thousand pounds of grapes all crushed up and fermenting so so okay from start to finish we pick the grapes i crush them de-stem them um then that ferments for two weeks or so and once that's done fermenting then i press it into barrel and then a secondary fermentation process happens that um changes uh, i always get this backwards but um malic acid to lactic acid which has a more smooth creamy mouthfeel um it just feels a, le a little less sharp that's a style thing i could stop that if i wanted to but i don't um and then in barrel it sits for a year and every month i go in like it loses maybe a quart or a bottle and a half of wine every month and I, I refill it to make sure there's no oxygen on the top and then plug the bung, leave it for a month. Um, and then that's for a year. And then once it's in bottle after that, then it just sits and my life is a lot easier, but the next crop has started. So <laughs> nice. That is, so that's, that's behind the scenes. That's what goes on behind the bottle of wine. You've got that process churning and, and running and, Meanwhile, I think another fascinating part of this process, for me at least, and I, I think just in general, is, is going to be what you've got going on in the soil of the vineyard because you've got 
all those other crops and all those uh, all the rest of the livestock kind of running around your farm how did what is that sort of interaction like with around the farm like all the other parts of that ecosystem aside from the actual um, grape vines themselves our soil is insanely deep it's river terrace um, alluvial soil we can dig down feet before we hit rocks which um, is kind of crazy and um, just a little tidbit when you have more alluvial soils like sandstone or this just you're going to get lighter wines so like my pinot noir is a very light pinot noir based off the soil if you get a soil from granite it's a lot of times super like flowery if you get a soil that if you have a, a pinot from like a clay soil it's powerful punchy it's yeah so going back to the terroir it's it's crazy the the difference that makes but um there's like we don't run our sheep and goats in between the vines or anything they would eat them um so they're in a pasture kind of right next to it but uh it's all organic orchards surrounding us there's like my neighbor who um got me into into bitcoin is a, a farmer um, they have an organic orchard and everything um, so that's on one side and then the rest of it's our farm and then the river so we're surrounded by a lot of awesome farming which makes our life a lot easier but we don't add anything to the soil we're not like really doing a ton of fertilization we're not row cropping we're not like tilling or anything it's just we mow the grass because it makes life a lot easier to go through them when we're about to do some work in there and that's about it any fertilizer we do get comes from our chicken coop so when i like crush the crush the grapes i get all the all the grape stems i toss them in the chicken coop and then when i press the grapes i get all the skins and seeds and then toss those in the chicken coop um, then that's covered with hay chickens run around on it we kind of have two separate chicken coops so every other year we'll scrape out all the soil all the manure and chickens whatever that's gone on in there and use that as fertilizer for the farm um, and then the next year we'll do the other side so it's all kind of staying within the same ecosystem which is is pretty cool um, i guess that's technically biodynamic but um, within biodynamism there's a lot of more mystical parts of it like i've not buried a, a goat horn on like the northeast corner of my property <laughs> under a full moon um, but other than that we're biodynamic um, i just don't really I'm not one to pay for certifications if I don't have to. So, yeah, it is, it is a funny, funny part of the food system is, is this whole idea of like certifying, certifying food. So the Demeter biodynamic certification is like something that uh, can be paid for by a certain vineyards and it, and it seems like there are some some funny practices like like you mentioned he's, he wasn't joking about burying a horn filled with like manure in, in part of the property like that's that's a legit biodynamic practice outlined by rudolf steiner like yeah. way back yeah yeah it's it's weird they got some funny stuff that kind of leads to a funny dichotomy that i'm between is like um on my wine bottles it says natural wine it's natural my wine is natural wine like that it I try and pretty much hit that to the T, but um, there's no certification around that. There's, you could just say natural wine and no one would do anything. No one would test it. No one would really even know, but like this, but so part of me is like, yeah, I wish there was something stabilized. I wish like people were able to find natural wine a little bit easier, but at the same time, like I don't want to feel, I don't want to do any more, certification work i don't want to fit under your standards of natural wine i want to do it my way and you can trust there's proof of work in this that you can trust you can drink my wine and feel good afterwards so um yeah i i kind of wish there was more transparency but at the same time like it's pretty nice to just be able to do your own thing as a consumer you probably want a little bit more transparency but it might cut out the little guys yeah yeah, there's this interesting sort of, I'd say, um, almost a Venn diagram or a nexus point between like the certification of quality versus you've got these almost underground sort of guys. Not that not that you're underground, but it, it's almost like the you've got to get to know them to know the authenticity. Like the authenticity is there. It's the same level of authenticity whether it's it's certified or not. It's just 
takes this extra level of like connection. And then that connection, I think actually is even more powerful once it's made, because like, I know you, I've heard your story. We've had a conversation. Now I know you and the wine and it, there's like no need for a certification, but it does the extra legwork is sort of involved where there, there, that connection has, has got to be made. And I think, I think that's actually really important and valuable. It's just a lot of people aren't, aren't willing, I guess, to do that, or, or maybe they are in your, in your opinion. I know you've been to a lot of farmer's markets around the Colorado area trying to sell wine and, and meet people to enjoy it. Yeah, so I think there's a few different levels of connection with your food. I mean, you have the, the baseline eating Doritos and mass-produced sludge. Um, and then there's other things that are like mainstream health foods that you can find at most grocery stores and everything. And you feel a little bit better about that. Um, but the, the third level is, yeah, knowing your rancher, knowing your farmer, knowing your winemaker. And that's where you really get um, the cool special connection. So you get like that, like you can eat organic vegetables from the store, but you're going to get way more nutrients if they're grown in awesome soils that have been tended to with care and yeah, it, it just feels better. You just feel so much more complete when you do know you're a farmer, when you're cooking a meal and you're like, I know exactly where this zucchini came from. Uh, wine is, is definitely even more so just because there's so much more nuance going into a glass of wine and you can hold on to it forever. So you can be like, man, remember when we bought this back in 2020, when we went to Colorado and we still have this bottle and we're just waiting for a good opportunity to open it. So, I mean, there's all these different connections with it. And I would say that uh, there's definitely a certain part of the population that really seeks it out. You just have to, you have to go to it. You have to go to your farmer's market on a Sunday or whenever and, and take time and meet people. And those connections really do mean something. I mean, there's a reason I spend 14 hour days selling wine at farmer's markets because I want those connections. I want to build them. And um, yeah, it's good for business long-term. I mean, I want people to know me and feel like they have a connection to me, but also like, I just want people to enjoy my wine. And if they know me, I know that they're going to enjoy my wine a lot more than any store-bought wine. So um, it means a lot to both people. I mean, it means a lot to have people just coming back directly to me to buy wine. Um, but that's a connection I don't get at all if, if it's just at the store. You know, um, it feels good to know who my consumer is. And also with that, I meet people that are like, hey, I also, I have this ranch. I love your wine. Can we just trade wine for beef or wine for salmon um so like i'm going to meet my my nearby hog farmer tomorrow and they're like can we trade wine for salami i'm like yes so basically <laughs> i've developed this barter economy where i could go most of my life without spending money on food and just trading wine um granted my product's pretty unique because it you know it just holds it stays forever but um it's a pretty awesome ecosystem to have joined it is awesome. It's really next level what you're doing. I think a lot of people are sort of strive for this level of connection and meaning and sort of just local kind of community. You've got a lot of these powerful aspects of, of life that so many of us have lost that you're able to regain it and promote and share because this sort of thing can be reconnected. People can tap into this sort of community and, and meaning and, and quality sourcing. And you're also doing this in a way that is highly technological because you're integrating the technology of Bitcoin. So like a, a sound money that I've been learning more about. And then you've got a much deeper knowledge base in and are actually integrating into your life and your business on a regular basis in a way that's revolutionary because you are offering a product in exchange for Bitcoin and are also spreading the use of it and also the knowledge of it. How has how has that sort of changed change your life? What's your story surrounding the, the integration of, of Bitcoin? Oh, it's opened so many doors. It's crazy. Um, I think, like, so I, I um, didn't, I, like I said, I grew up here, moved back home, and I moved in with a, a Bitcoiner buddy. So I always had someone into Bitcoin that I knew. Um, but then going to the Bitcoin conference in Miami last year, I was, it just opened my eyes to be like, these are great people how can I surround myself with more Bitcoiners? And then the beef initiative had a conference near me that I got to take a part in, give a, a vineyard tour. And the people that are in Bitcoin and searching out amazing, like connection with their rancher connection with their food and just a more of a holistic lifestyle, just like locked in. These are my people. How can I be around them more? 
And so then I, I don't know, I just started posting on Twitter a little bit more and then um, have grown a, a little bit of a following there. And what I found is that people are in Bitcoin specifically are just like so over the top wanting connection, um, wanting to like a real whole, a real like holistic approach to their life and understanding that food is and nutrition is kind of the baseline layer of that. So they want to meet their rancher. They want to, and they want to support other Bitcoiners because um, I mean, Bitcoiners, a lot of times they're kind of out on their own. Like they don't know any other Bitcoiners around. And um, so when they can meet someone that's building something that's building um, and becoming part of the, the Bitcoin economy by building a cool product, they, they want to support. So it's a connection between wanting to support um, small businesses, one of their own, and wanting that good food and understanding that like a, a Bitcoiner generally, I mean, kind of really values credibility, truth, sticking to their word and connection. Um, so like, I'm going to trust a Bitcoiner more than a non-Bitcoiner just first off, because if you, if I can tell that you've truly understood Bitcoin, you've probably had your life changed on its head because it's totally flipped the way you saw the world. Um, because it's, it's, I mean, like I've, I had to unlearn so much to be able to figure out Bitcoin. Um, but within that it's, I've been just been finding like all these amazing people and it's been such an awesome journey to go down. Wow. That's powerful. It's a powerful story for something that is often perceived as maybe a speculative investment or something that's sort of shady. How do, how do you perceive this asset or technology? It's, you know, just to give you a bit of, bit of space to, to think about that big question. I know that at a base layer, you know, it was created by some guy and nobody knows who he is. It kind of took the world by storm. It's been fluctuating wildly in price. Like at a glance, it's, it's an amazing part of, of life that has sort of emerged really in the past decade or so. And it's, I think a lot of people struggle to sort of wrap their head around it and, and aren't sure what to make of it. And, and you've, you've definitely uh, made up your mind and, and I'm curious how it has brought value in your life and, and what you think of it now. Yeah, it's, it is hard to grasp. I mean, it's this like, it's this extremely simple thing that is just a total shift in perspective in everything you think about the world. Um, and requires like a, a complete refoundationing of how you see um, money, which is a technology that we don't think about very often. It's just kind of something that works or doesn't work for us. So like learning about, I was really into personal finance before I found Bitcoin. And then once, as I was started to understand it, it just like it, it, like I said, it flipped my world upside down. And um, yeah, so you mentioned like, one of the first things you mentioned is that the price fluctuates wildly and it does hundred percent like, and it probably will for a while. But to me, Bitcoin is like the one constant in my life. I mean, sure. I've got a lot of constants, but Bitcoin doesn't change. It still works. I do block every 10 minutes. I don't have to think about it. Like the rules of the financial of the Bitcoin financial system never change. I understand them. I don't have to worry about them. My Bitcoin is over here. I'm good. So contrasting that with the fiat financial system, you're reading the news. Oh, pal, pal raised the rates again. What's that going to do? And then you just keep learning about the, the current financial system. It's just all these deep rabbit holes. It's so confusing. Like I'm a nerd about this stuff. And every time I listen to like a deep podcast about it, I'm learning something new. Um, and it's been years of, of diving in. So it's extremely convoluted. You are not meant to understand it. You're not educated about it. And a lot of that is your money is being stolen from you. I mean, every dollar that they print is stealing value from your dollars. Um, I think I may be going on a, on a tangent here, but like the, the biggest thing for me to understand in Bitcoin was um, how does the world look like if uh, with a money that is 
stable. So you're saying what, like what do prices look like with a hard capped money supply? And so with a non hard capped money supply, what we've seen is prices rising forever. Um, on gold, there's a, a gold inflation rate, monetary inflation rate of about 2% a year. So that means that you, no matter like how much gold there is over time, 2% more gold is, in, is put into the system every year. So that means all the existing gold is diluted by 2%. So your gold is worth less because there's it's less of a percentage of the total gold supply. With fiat, they can change the amount of money in the system at any point. And they, I mean, they're constantly printing it. There's rarely destruction. And so they're like searching for an inflation rate of like 2%. They, that's like all the CPI stuff. If diving into that, it's pretty much a bullshit number um, <laughs> that's skewed to make us think they're not stealing as much as, as they think we are. Um, and then, so like, I don't, it's, I have my dollars over an infinite supply. Like I have no idea what that infinite supply is. It could change tomorrow. Um, with Bitcoin, I know that if I have one Bitcoin, I have one Bitcoin out of 21 million. And if coins are lost, even less. So I know my purchasing supply within the Bitcoin ecosystem. And the idea is like, that's fair. Um, it won't change. And hard money, the harder money throughout history has always won the, the free market competition for money. So if you have the hardest money ever, it's going to win and it's just a matter of time. So yeah, I mean, at this point, there's some speculation in Bitcoin. I mean, like you're speculating that the current financial system may or may like will collapse over time and that Bitcoin will win. And the more education you do on the current financial system and on Bitcoin, um, the more confident you get, it's just kind of like a, it turns into a no brainer and the more, the longer you're in it, the price movements just like, yeah, it's my savings. Like I'm not looking to spend this money. I'm have a four year time horizon on it. So I don't really like, I, I think about it cause I'm interested in it, but like the, the price move day to day does not affect me in any way. I know how much Bitcoin I have and I own this for my long-term future. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it kind of just takes out, like, I don't have to worry about my finances. I don't have to do any speculative investments. I just have my Bitcoin. I don't have to like go in the stock market and buy all these, these stocks or, or bonds or anything. I just, I just literally save money is how I see it. I'm just saving money and Bitcoin is my money of choice. It certainly does seem like a great way to simplify and evolve the concept of, of money and even finance to a certain degree. If you were to, you know, anyone were to stop and imagine what a perfect world would look like in regards to money, it, you can really, I, so I, I studied economics in school. You don't really need to have a strong discipline study on, on finance or economics to, to gather that inflation has increased rampantly over the past few years. And it, it's wild to think like, yeah, that could happen again, or, and it could be worse next, next time. And it's, it's, it's frightening that we essentially have, you know, wallets with green paper in it that is like, okay, that's basically monopoly money because it, they can just print it. They just click print and it, you know, they send out these checks to people, you know, they put digits in the people's banks accounts and all of a sudden eggs are like 30 to 40% more, more money. And our quality of life really does degrade as a result of that. Can't afford as many things, can't save as much. And, and it's really at a root level, at a root cause level, it's because the money is, is based on nothing. And, and there are people who control the financial system that aren't looking long-term or aren't really caring about the majority of the people. They've got their own priorities and objectives. So what I, what I love about the this idea, the, this new thing called Bitcoin is, is for a lot of the reasons that you outlined, it's a really powerful way for us, the people, to take back our sovereignty in a very real way. We don't need to rely on these, you know, powerful people that are pretty shady in the way that they engage with their public policy, but also the community that you outline. Like the people who are involved with this are, are people who care. Like they they aren't people who are apathetically drifting through life. They're they're involved with with connecting to the things that matter. Like their health and, and the food and, and the money, like they want to be a part of a better world. And, and 
I know that Bitcoin has been sort of looked at as a speculative asset within the realm of cryptocurrency, but it really is is different. And I don't want to, you know, make this a, a cryptocurrency or Bitcoin podcast, but it is an important part of your life. And I definitely appreciate you you sharing the details about it because I think it's important for everyone to at least think about investing in at a, at a certain degree, um, maybe on a regular basis, just owning some Bitcoin, being involved with the community and, and playing with the idea of, of how could this make the world a better place? Because it really does seem to have a powerful energy to it. So I find that, that Bitcoiners are more hopeful for the future than, than most people. And part of that is, I mean, tuning out some, some crazy noise in mainstream media a lot of it, but it's also that when you have money that is going to increase in value over time, and I'm not even talking about like moon boy, Bitcoin goes up 10,000%. I'm talking like when I think about Bitcoin, I think about it in the long term, staying with human productivity. So like we get better at producing things at like two to 5% a year. So my money should increase in value or in purchasing power at two to 5% a year instead of losing um, two to 10% to 30, whatever, like so much. And so when you have something that like gives you value into the future, you value the future more. So if you have dollars and you know they're going to be worthless in the future, you spend them now, you, you don't care about the future as much um, because you have to buy it, you have to use things now. But when I can just save money in Bitcoin, it gives me so much more hope to the future. Um, one thing I want to push back on that you said is that the dollar is based on nothing. And I, I firmly disagree on that. Um, the dollar is based on a set of rules. And those set of rules can just be changed at any point by just maybe 12 people in the world. Um, they're also enforced by the largest military in the world. So, and the United States legal and judicial system. So there are rules set in place, they just change. And that's the difference with Bitcoin is that the rules are set in stone and they don't change. So I don't have to worry about someone new coming into Bitcoin and trying to change it because they can't. It's a free market money and the free market has decided those rules. It's a beautiful way to explain it. And I appreciate you adding some additional context and color to the reality of the situation because that is a much deeper understanding. And I'll, I'll throw just volley some objections that, come, that have come to my mind over, over the past few years about the concept of Bitcoin and, and being involved just to, just to see how you, what you think of it. For one, the idea that it's some sort of a, a pyramid scheme. Obviously, to some degree, the people who were involved previously are going to benefit more from other people who are involved in the future. So there is some like pyramid element to it. But at its base level, it doesn't seem like it is a pyramid scheme because now we have all these different softwares that, that are growing up, different social media networks that are realigning the incentives and, and the community that, that is involved as, as well, really leveraging this technology. And the sort of way that it was used to, in the past, kind of facilitate nefarious transactions or, or what have you as, as a way to sort of bypass, um, you know, the monetary system. How, how do you sort of approach that part of the, the conversation to where, where there may be some hesitation from someone listening or, or some like uh, devious sort of perceptions about it? Sure. Yeah. So you touched on two things that are a bit different with the, the pyramid scheme thought and the um, use by criminals. Um, so I'll touch the pyramid scheme thing first. Money is a technology and that's all it is. It, it allows for human commerce. It allows for exchanges of ideas and the um, perception of value to be portrayed. And it allows me to be a winemaker and still be able to buy everything I need without having to trade for wine, even though I love to do that. <laughs> Um, and so in emerging technologies, like, like the cell phone, um, sure you, you get increased availability, but like as more and more people adopt them, your use of the cell phone get just like increases exponentially your value you get from the cell phone increases exponentially. Um, but all you get there is, yeah, you get like maybe a couple extra years with a cell phone when it's not as big of a deal. Um, but with Bitcoin, I'm storing value. Money is a completely different technology that has value in transmitting. Or it transmits value between space and time. And so I gain it's a, just a superior technology in those ways. Bitcoin um, transmits money faster around the globe than um, 
the current financial system and gives you better, better save. It's a better savings technology than anything else we have. Um, and yeah, it's, it's an early adoption technology that if you want to be early, you can, but you also take more risk. And the, the thing is, is like, if you're a late adopter, you still see the benefits of Bitcoin. You still have your money growing in value over time. You just didn't buy it at a crazy discount. You didn't do the work early and that's on you. The information is out there. If you want to learn about Bitcoin, go learn about Bitcoin. If you don't, sorry, like whatever. Um, it takes a lot of work to understand, but it's worth doing. Um, the stuff for criminals and everything, I mean, like the dollar is the greatest money laundering tool ever. It's used by so many criminals. Um, and guess how many, guess how well you can chase a cash transaction. You can't. It's totally invisible when it comes to ledgers. Every transaction on Bitcoin exists forever. Um, you can have like a, a running a Bitcoin node is literally just running a list of every transaction that's ever occurred. So you can change it. You can chase it. You can you can track it to a degree. Um, and there's no one stopping you from making a transaction. So like, let's say, for instance, in a lot of states, weed's illegal. And if I got caught for for having a weed business or something, um, or just running it slightly differently, I could get debanked. I could get taken out of the monetary system completely, whether or not, like, say I'm in Utah and, and, and like, weed's legal in, like, a lot of states around it. But just because I'm in Utah, I could get kicked off the monetary system and, like, lose everything because of weed. You can't, no one can kick you off the Bitcoin network. Anyone can use it. So, yeah, bad people are going to use Bitcoin. Good people are going to use Bitcoin. But the good thing is, is it's here for everyone. Anyone can use Bitcoin. Amazingly well said. That has only intrigued my interest further. And I'm sure anyone listening is, is going to have a, a similar experience of being being intrigued by everything that you're using to explain this. And it brings to mind something else that I know you're you're into is having steak in your pocket and the, the pocket steak has been a big, has been a big staple has, has been a big ski snack. And how, how did that get started? What, what, what's the deal with the pocket steak? Um, so at the Bitcoin conference that was held here, the, the meat, the meat mafia guys came to my house and, and toured the vineyard. And I was just like, so enamored with their energy. I was like, what are these guys doing? I want that energy. Turns out they were just eating a lot of beef. And so I've just like in my diet journey, I've just started eating a ton of a ton of beef um, and feeling great from it. And so it's like, why not? Like I had the first one, I just kind of had a steak leftover from the night before. I had two steaks thought I just cooked them both and then went skiing the next day. And I didn't really think much of it, but my buddy took a picture and so posted on Twitter and then pocket steak, I guess, is evocative for a lot of people for a few different reasons. And um Kind of went from there and now it's just like yeah i'm going skiing i'm gonna have a steak in my pocket what do you eat granola bars <laughs> screw that do you have a steak in your pocket right now uh, no i have a steak in the fridge that i'm gonna cook but <laughs> no skiing right now <laughs> awesome have, have you had some funny reactions on the, on the trails and on the chairlift when you pull a steak out of your pocket and start munching 100 one guy was like dude you're my hero instantly love that um <laughs> And then like another guy was a Highlands Bowl is a, it's like a 45 minute hike from the top of one of the ski resorts, a, a pretty awesome spot. Great view. Um, just hanging out. And, you know, after the hike, I pull out my, my pocket steak and this guy goes, Oh, what's that? And I was like, I just showed it to him. I was like, you want a bite? And he's like, is that steak? No. Oh my God. No. Um, he's like, I thought it was a cinnamon roll. I'm like, damn, that is like fucked up nutrition, you know? Um, that this, this guy just wants to eat a cinnamon roll on top of the mountain and doesn't want to touch a steak. Like I know it's, you know, random dude offering food, but, um, I don't know. It, I think people are a lot of times like a little bit thrown off. They're like, what the, you have a steak in your pocket. Like, I don't know if I want any of that. And then I offer him a bite and they're like, that's pretty good. So, um, I don't know. It's been catching on. It's fun. Um, and it's just great, easy nutrition for me. I mean, like I don't, really make, take the time to cook eggs in the morning or really cook a breakfast when I'm going skiing. So, um, bars only go so far and I've just like, it's so easy to toss a steak on and just flip it every two minutes or however you cook it and, uh, have an awesome meal the whole day. Um, yeah, you get some funny reactions. So that's, that's great entertainment as well. 
That's awesome. Yeah, that's. I can see why that would be fun to do and and delicious and nutritious. It's got it really checks all the boxes there. The pocket steak. It's a, it's a brilliant invention that that you've got there, and I'm glad you're glad you're sharing it out out with the world and on the internet because it's a. Uh, that's that's another good one. You've got a lot going on, and, and the pocket steak is just just another another tool in the toolkit. Yeah, I mean that's practical, but it's just fun, and like I mean everything I'm doing is just stuff that's like become a passion of mine. Um, I always wanted to have a business. Wine connected me to the land. Um, Bitcoin was the like connection. I mean, it really taught me how to think in a lot of ways, um, but it, it's a connection to my money in a better way. And then pocket steak was just like on the road to just wanting better nutrition and wanting because I have Bitcoin, because I value my future so much more, I had to build my nutrition stack. So I would be happy and healthy in the future to enjoy any money that I save. Well, it's a beautiful journey that that you've been on and you're hitting all these really important principles and, and sharing them out with the world as well in, in a powerful way so that others can, can link in, tap in and integrate what you've learned into their life. And I've really appreciated getting to know you better, hearing more about your story and, and everything that you've shared here in, in this conversation. Is there anything else left that you'd sort of like to, to, to touch on or, or share with, with everyone listening? Um, I'm just like to say that like, I'm always around if you have more questions about Bitcoin. Like my favorite thing is educating. I was into educating my friends on personal finance before Bitcoin and I'm even more so after. Um, and so like just references, whatever you need, just uh, anyone listening to this, like feel free to reach out. Amazing. And I will link all of your social media accounts down below and as well as the, the link to your, to your wine. Can, can people listening buy it online? Yeah. So I ship all over the country. Um, pretty much peonylanewine.com P E O N Y. And you can buy with Bitcoin on the Oshi app. So I sell a lot of wine for Bitcoin, which is super fun. Um, because if someone's spending their Bitcoin on my product, I know they value it a ton, which feels great as a producer. Amazing. That was a, an awesome episode. Really enjoyed speaking with you, Ben. Um, yeah, that, that was great. Ben, Ben Justman, everybody. Thank you.